Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. In a world where you and I are essentially evolved pond scum, at least pond scum that grew into fish, that grew legs, that walked up into land, that grew into monkeys, that grew into human beings. In a world where we are essentially just evolved pond scum, what right does one evolved fish have to say to another evolved fish that the thing that they are doing is evil? I think in that worldview, you really have no basis to call anything evil. And so I use that as an example to say that we look at the way that all the different worldviews answer this question. And, and with time and time again, what I have discovered and what I, find, I think you will discover as you are intellectually honest with the truth and seeking it is that the Christian worldview makes the most sense of the world that we live in. Now, what we have this morning as last week we ended a phase of Genesis— the life of Jacob and enter this week into a new part of Genesis, the life of Joseph, really we have a, a quest, an answer to that question. What does Christianity do with the problem of evil? What does Christianity do with the presence of evil in this world? Specifically, we're going to see that this morning in Genesis 37. But more practically for you and I this morning, I think that in Genesis 37, We have an answer for the evil of our own lives. This is a reality of what we've seen so far in Genesis, isn't it? It's a real practical application for us that wherever God's people are, evil is always close at hand. Think about where we've walked through the book of Genesis so far. Think about Adam and Eve who were in the garden and were living in paradise until the serpent came and deceived them. And then Cain and Abel who... Very quickly, the, this, their family sin ruined God's people again. And then Noah, who is righteous for a while, but ends his life with evil inside of him. And then the Tower of Babel with Abram, you have the evil of infertility and family sin. And the list goes on. Isaac and Jacob and all of his deceit. One thing that screams through all of these stories is that evil has always surrounded God's people, that where God's people are, the presence of evil is as well. And so we have an important question to ask ourselves this morning as we live in the presence of evil, as we live in an evil age. The the question we need to ask ourselves is this, how do we make sense of it? How do we make sense of this evil age that we find ourselves in? Well, Genesis 37 in the story of Joseph helps us to understand this. So let's read this together, and you can follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Genesis 37, starting in verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. 
Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to, them, said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue you him out of their hand to rest, restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on, the, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brother and said, the boy is gone, and, where I, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his, his son many days. All the sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, as we enter into the life and story of jo Joseph, we, we really embark in one of the most amazing stories in all of the Bible. In fact, even as those who do not believe in God's word have looked at God's word, Joseph is really one of the stories that re resonates with them most closely. 
And it's good for us at the beginning of Joseph's story just to take a moment to maybe remind us what happens throughout Joseph's life. We just read about Joseph being favored by his father, but resented by his brothers. And so we read in chapter 37 that he he was sold into slavery. Now we find when we pick up with Joseph again that he's sold into slavery to, to serve Potiphar. And serving Potiphar, one day he is falsely accused and then imprisoned, where in prison he has the opportunity to interpret for two of his fellow prison mates, he has the opportunity to interpret their dreams. Now through Jacob's service to these prison mates, you'll remember that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the highest power in all the land, hears of Jacob, calls for Jacob, and there Jacob interprets his two dreams. And from that interpretation, from that act of service to Pharaoh, Jacob is given the right-hand command. Jacob becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And the whole story, as he eventually redeems his own family from the famine that they've been experiencing, is really summarized so well in Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph says these words, As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, Joseph walks through an incredible, deep valley. Joseph endures great evil, but one of the things that Joseph models for us as a Christian is how we make sense of the evil world that we live in. How are we as Christians to live in the presence of evil? How are we to make sense of this world? We look at the life of Joseph and we see his integrity, his unwillingness to let his character be shamed in the midst of temptation and trial. We see his resilience. He, no matter how much deeper he gets into this trial and suffering, he will not stop. We see his forgiveness, his wisdom, his humility, his faithfulness, his generosity. And we got to be honest, coming out of the life of Jacob, aren't we all kind of hungry for someone like that? Jacob has been none of these things. And in Joseph, we have an example of all of these things. And I want you to see this morning that God wants to see us to see so much more than just a model of good character here. What Joseph ultimately points us towards is the only one, the only one who can truly redeem us. As Joseph and his character will be used to redeem his brothers from the famine, Moses wants to point our eyes to one who is coming who can truly redeem us from our greatest famine. And so I want you to see in the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, the way that Joseph's life really helps us to make sense of the evil that we're in and helps us to find clarity in it. I want you to see this first. If you're taking notes, this is your first point. I find clarity when I accept his plan. I find clarity when I accept his plan. Now look at verse 2 with me of chapter 37. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. And if you're walking along Genesis, if you've been with us since the beginning, you've come to know that this is kind of like a section marker for Moses. All throughout Genesis, he has been marking off different sections with this sort of phrase. These are the generations of blank. And what he does when he marks off those sections is he brings us from the previous section into a new section. And so you remember in Genesis 2, after uh, Moses had explained the creation of the heavens and earth, in Genesis 2 verse 4, Moses says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. And then he goes into Adam and Eve. And so we find here Moses signaling to us that we're moving to a new generation. He says, these are the generations of Jacob. And now he focuses on the family of Jacob. 
I want you to understand that this does, this, this helps us make sense of what Moses is doing in Genesis. You see, we can be tempted as we think about all the different people that God was working through throughout the, and the different families he was working through in Genesis, we can be tempted to just think that God was like failing time and time again. And so he makes Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve fail. And so then he's got Noah and Noah's good for a little bit, but then he fails. So then he's going to get Abraham, but then Abraham's not good enough and he fails. So he moves on to Jacob and then now he's at, or sorry, Isaac and then Jacob and Joseph. And we get this sense that it's just like no one can get it right. So, so God keeps scrapping the plan and starting a new one. And that could be farther from the truth. What Moses is pointing our eyes to is that the things that are happening with all of these different people are all the plan of God. This isn't like him starting from scratch over and over and over again because God's people can't get it right. Instead, this is a progressive plan of redemption, and all of it we've been seeing is pointing ultimately to his son. And it's good for us to recognize this as we enter into a new life where God will display once again his faithfulness to Joseph as he, has, as he has displayed his faithfulness to Jacob, as he has displayed his faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, to Noah, to Adam and Eve. God has been faithful then so that we have assurance he will be faithful now. Has this not been an encouragement to you? I hope as we've gone through Genesis, like your heart has been encouraged as my heart has, as, as we've seen the depths of despair and evil that the people of God have walked through, and yet every time God is faithful to them. And here in Genesis so far, we've had like the example of five different families that have all experienced God's faithfulness and track the history of humanity up until today, and we have thousands and thousands of different examples. God has been faithful to all of his people for all of time. And so as you look at your life, do you think God's going to be faithful with you? Do you think God's going to be faithful to you? Our answer is, of course. If for thousands and thousands of years, God has faithfully carried his people every step of the way, he has never let them down once then what is it for God in your life to continually, faithfully carry you? This is who our God is. He is the faithful God. Now notice in verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to Joseph. It's told there in verse 2, that Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And now read these words. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, as we work through this story, the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph, one of the things that commentators kind of wrestle with is whether Joseph is blameless in his actions. And there are some who look at Joseph's actions here and say that they are negative, that he's kind of being like a snitch with Bilhaz and Zilpah's children. And they take the, the uh, attitude of, of some parents in here who say snitches get stitches. And so some believe that about Joseph, while others believe that Joseph is faithful in this chapter. And my answer to both of those things is yes. In fact, maybe the best answer we can say is we don't know because the reality is Moses doesn't tell us whether Joseph's action is morally good or morally bad, and I think that that's intentional. But here's what Moses wants to show us, 
And we see this in, in many different ways that I'll show to you this morning. What Moses wants us to see is that Joseph is now the one through whom God is going to pour out his covenant blessings. Remember, this has been a really important part of Genesis, hasn't it? The question for God's people in Genesis should have always been this. Who is the one that God is going to answer his promises through? And during the life of Abram, when we talked about the difference between Abram and Lot, our suggestion to Lot was that he get himself as close to Abram as possible. Because Abram was the one that God was choosing to give the seed, the land, and the blessing. It was the same with Isaac. It was the same with Jacob. If you wanted to experience God's blessing, if you wanted to be the people of God, then the thing you needed to do was attach yourself to these people through whom God promised he would work. And what Moses is doing for us is showing us that Joseph is the one through whom the covenantal blessings will come. Notice that in verse 3, when we read that Israel loved Joseph, and the reason that he loved him was because he was the son of his old age, this is not the first time in Genesis that we have learned of a father loving a son who has been given to him in his old age. Immediately, this should make you think of Abraham. You remember the problem with Abraham? Remember the, the, the trial we walked through with Abraham where, where he was promised a son, but it took so long for the son to be given to him? And here we find Joseph loving the son of his old age, and we're reminded that just as Isaac was the chosen child through whom the covenant blessing would come, here Moses is giving us every indication that Joseph is the chosen child through whom the covenant will come. And not only as he loved, Jacob also displays his love for Joseph. And so we read there that he makes him a robe of many colors. Now, in this chapter, we can build a real theology of sibling privilege, can't we? We can build a theology to say that the oldest sibling has always been the most favored, haven't they? Youngest siblings in the house, you guys can agree. You point to your oldest brother, sister, they are always the favorite. Joseph, he gets the colored robe, the amazing robe that you can see from kilometers and kilometers away. And youngest siblings, what do we get? The tattered robes, tattered shorts, tattered pants. There's no knees in them. The oldest has always been the most privileged. Now, that's not the main point at all. But as a youngest child, I feel the need just to bring that up, okay? Because youngest childs always need to bring that up, don't they? When in reality, I know that I am also the favorite. So there's a lot of ironic things going on here, but let's move on. Joseph's giving this robe, and this robe also reminds us some, of some pretty important points in the book of Genesis, doesn't it? This, this word robe, is, it's actually a, a skin in the Hebrew language. It's a skin that's given to, to Joseph. And it reminds us of Genesis 3.21, doesn't it? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they had fallen before the Lord? What's the first thing that God does? He clothes them in skins. God had chosen Adam and Eve to be his children despite their sin, and so he clothes them. It also reminds us of a robe that was pretty significant in Jacob, stealing the blessing of Esau. You remember when Jacob stole the blessing of Esau, he went into the presence of his father, Isaac, who was blind at the time. And because Esau was a hairy man and Jacob was a smooth man, what Jacob did was he put a 
robe, a, a skin of an animal on himself, so that when Isaac felt him, he would feel hairy. And here we, as Joseph receives this robe, Moses is giving us every indication that this, like Jacob, this, like Adam and Eve, is the chosen child of God through whom the covenant blessings are going to come. verse 4, we see that the robe that is given to him is visual, so that it is this robe, this colorful robe that is given to J- Joseph that causes his brothers to hate him. And what we find here is that Joseph is loving, sorry, Jacob is loving Joseph to the exclusion of his other children. And it really is a sad story. See, on, in one respect, Jacob is right to favor Joseph because Joseph is the chosen child through whom the covenant blessings are going to come. But he is not right to do that to the exclusion of all of his other children. What Jacob should have done was loved Joseph and he should have pointed his children's eyes to the way that God would bless his people through Joseph. Instead, what Jacob does is he drives his children away from Joseph. And when Joseph has the dream and reveals it to Jacob, you read what Jacob said to him in verse 10. He rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? See, instead of loving Joseph and driving his other children to the place of covenant blessing, Jacob is just consumed with his feelings for Joseph. And so he loves Joseph exclusive of his other children. And the reality is that that instead of being led by God's truth, instead of understanding that Joseph's dreams is is God's revelation to him of how he's going to work through Joseph, what Jacob does is he's just led by his feelings. He's led by this passion he has for Joseph. And it's a very important reminder to you and I. See, the Bible calls us to be led by truth. Now, it's important that we, we, we say feelings are important, but feelings are not the things that, are, that, that we are called to be led by. And so the question for you is this. In your life, if you were to think of your life as, as though it were a train, what is the engine? Is it truth or is it feeling? The decisions that you make in your life, are you waiting for the right feeling? Or are you searching out the word of God? searching out the advice of wise counselors who know God's word and are seeking to apply it to your life in love. See, we might be, in our own experience, being led by feeling rather than truth, but another thing that I'm concerned about as a a pastor is that even in our theology, we might be led by feeling rather than the truth of God's word. And I need to say that this, this is one of the areas that I'm concerned with in the charismatic movement. Not in everybody in the charismatic movement, but certainly in some respects, there are many who, instead of being led by the truth of God's word, will be led by their experience. And it's important that in our experiences, we always bring it back to the word of God so that the word of God even has the trump card over the things that we have experienced. It always needs to be, no matter what background we are from, it always needs to be God's word first. God's word is the metric by which we make every decision. God's word is the foundation upon which we rest all of our theology. God's word comes first. 
not our feelings. Now notice also that Jacob's problem was the same problem that Isaac had, wasn't it? Like you think of all the people that that understood what it was like to have a father who wrongly preferred the wrong son, Jacob would know. Because you'll remember that Isaac wrongly preferred Esau over Jacob. Even though God had said he was going to work through Jacob, Isaac preferred Esau. This is an important reality that we come to learn in this chapter, that our sin is profoundly affected by our family, by our upbringing. See, we kind of live in an individualistic culture, don't we? So that we kind of think like our problem is our own problem. And yet what the Bible teaches us is that the, the sins of our family are, is a really big spiritual deal. And I think it's really important as we celebrate Father's Day this morning that as fathers, you and I think about this reality that your life lived for the Lord has a significant impact on your children. And that remind ourselves of this reality that Jacob's children, the most important thing for them is that Jacob leads them to the promise of God. Fathers, you need to hear this, that the most important thing that you can provide for your children is that you lead them to a living relationship with Jesus Christ. You can give them everything else in the world, and it does not matter. The most important thing is that they know Jesus and that through your life they come to know the sweetness of knowing Jesus. See, your children's greatest need, it's not grades, some of the youth in here are very excited to hear that. They're nudging their parents. Hey, you got to hear that, okay? Grades are not the most important thing. It's not their financial security. It's not their opportunity, whether it's in their career or sport. The most important need of your child is your holiness. And yet, I also want to remind you as fathers, as we think about the life of J- Joseph, I want to remind you that God is merciful. See, Jacob fails. And as we look at our own lives as fathers, we need to be honest and humble to recognize that we have not been perfect. We could get up here and list our failures, and and it probably would not end. As fathers, we feel the sense in which we have failed our families at times, don't we? The times where we have made other, elevated other things to of utmost importance rather than Jesus Christ. The times where we have been more worried about the kingdom of, of ourselves rather than the kingdom of Christ in our families. And even though Jacob fails his children, I want to remind you through the entire story of Joseph that God is going to use this failure to ultimately redeem his children and to remind you that God doesn't need you. He does not need you in order to lead your children to a living relationship with him. So maybe you're here and you hear this and you're like, great, heap on the shame because I feel like I failed my children. I feel like I should have led them to the Lord, but now they're not following the Lord because of my negative influence in their life. And I want you to see this truth that God is merciful. He doesn't need you. And so what you need to do is get on your knees and depend on the Lord that he's sovereign even over your greatest failures. 
And one more way that Moses is showing us that Joseph is the one he plans to work through, it's through these dreams, which will take up much of Joseph's stories. He, he himself has two dreams, but when he goes to jail, he'll interpret another pair of dreams. And then in the presence of Pharaoh, he will interpret another pair of dreams. Now, the first dream we read of in verses 6 and 7 is a dream with his brothers, where we are told that Jacob dreams this dream of sheaves standing in a field, and, and the sheaves of his brothers gathered around him to bow down before him. And then we read of the second dream where it's really saying the same thing, but it's also including both his father and his mother. And really what these dreams are are saying is they're revelations from God that Joseph is the one through whom he is going to work. Now, again, this reminds us that Moses is telling us and confirming for us that Joseph indeed is the one that through, through whom God is going to work. Remember when Jacob was blessed by Isaac. Remember what Jacob said to him in his blessing. In verse 29 of chapter 27, Jacob blessed, sorry, Isaac blessed Jacob, and he said this, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blessed you. What Jacob should have understood from the blessing of Isaac is that the person that God chooses to work his covenant blessings through will be the person through whom the whole family even bows down to. And God here is declaring that Joseph is that person. Now look how everyone responds. In verses 8 and 11, we see the brothers, they respond in hate and jealousy. And in verse 10, we see that the, the, the father and Jacob, he responds in resentment and anger. And all of their response really has to do with this. Why should Joseph rule over them? I want to note something really quickly here. Note that we know the whole story, don't we? It's really easy for us to read the story and kind of be like critical of them because we know how it ends. Well, brother, brothers, you should just be okay with it, okay? It's all going to be okay in the end. But we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the brothers who have no idea how the story is going to end. And when we do that, we actually find ourselves in the same situation that we often are. See, when we walk through trial, the hardest part of it is that we have no idea in many ways what God is doing. Isn't it? A sickness comes in the life of someone in your family. And you're like, God, God, why now? Why would you do this now? You lose your job. And the question is like, God, what are you doing? And the question deep down, though we might never voice it, is like, God, are you really in control? Because I'm looking at things here and it certainly does not seem like you know what you're doing, God. Joseph's brothers, they don't, they don't know the future. All they know is Jacob isn't fathering them well. And here's Joseph they think, in his pride, declaring that he's better than them. And yet, they fail to model what Joseph will model so well in his life. These brothers, they fail to model acceptance of God's plan. See, these brothers, they should have accepted that these dreams were from God and that this was the way that God was going to work. And instead of being... uh, prideful and and filled with resentment and being angry at Joseph that he might rule. Instead, they should have been submissive to God's plan and humbled under the plan of God because God is a God who can do whatever he pleases and he can do it for the sake of his glory. And it begs the question of us, how do we respond when things happen in our life that we can't make sense of? How do we respond? 
And there's really only two ways that we can respond. We can either respond with an anxious response or an expectant response. Either we respond in anxiety where we say, God, I don't know what you're doing. And we start worrying about all the possible negative things that might happen. Or we say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm expectant that you're doing something. Because I look back over the history of humanity and you've always been faithful. And so you're going to be faithful again, God. I'm so encouraged by, by people in this church who, who they know who they are. They're walking through such difficult trials in their life and their eyes are on the Lord and they're saying, God, I don't know what you're doing, but my eyes are on you. I know something good will come of this because I know who you are, God. And instead of being filled with anxiety because they don't know what will happen, they're filled with expectancy because they trust the goodness, the wisdom, and the love of God. They've heard Christ's call to trust in God and cast every anxiety upon him with great expectancy that God is using all the evil in the world for the sake of his glory, that he will tie a ribbon on every unanswered question in your life so that it all points to his glory. His brothers should have, been, should have recognized that everything in their life so far was according to the sovereign plan of God everything. There's nothing that has happened in your life that has not come into your life apart from the sovereign will of God. The question is, what do you believe about the God who's doing that, who's bringing that into your life? Do you respond to that thing that has been brought in with anxiety or expectancy? Well, the question that we've been asking through Genesis as we've seen really the failure of so many of God's people is, what should they have done? And that leads us to our next point. The thing that they should have done was embraced his person. They should have embraced God's person. They, they, first, they should have accepted God's plan, but the second thing they should have done was ex- embraced God's person. See, Joseph was the person God had chosen. And as we look back and see the life of Joseph, and we see it in its entirety, one of the applications for us should be to see through Joseph to Jesus. You see, just as Joseph was the chosen child of God through whom all the covenant blessings would come through, really what's happening here is Moses is pointing our eyes to someone who is greater than Joseph that will come. Moses is pointing our eyes to Jesus. Moses is pointing our eyes to one who will come from the seed of the woman who would ultimately bring our redemption beyond Joseph. And I believe that the New Testament writers do this work as well. As the New New Testament writers look at Jesus' life, one of the things that they want to do for us is tie it back to Joseph's life so that we understand just as Joseph was outcast, but then God used that horrible event for our salvation, for the salvation of his brothers and for Israel, so Jesus will be outcast, and Jesus is going to use that great evil for the salvation of his people. Well, let's take a state of the union of this, at this point of how God's people are doing. Where are God's people at? Well, notice that at this po- very point, 11 of the 12 children of God, people of God are 12 strong right now, and 11 of them have rejected God's chosen child. The answer is this. They're not doing very well. An informed reader of Genesis will read chapter sorry, verse 12, where they go to Shechem and say, this is not going to end well for them. 
This has been the story through Genesis, hasn't it? That when God's people go to bad places, bad things happen. Whenever God's people traveled east, away from the presence of God, bad things happen. Now these brothers find themselves in Shechem, and Shechem is the place where the travesty with Dinah happened. Shechem was the place that Jacob wrongly went to and experienced suffering because of him. And in verse 18, if going to Shechem wasn't bad enough, in verse 18, we find that these brothers see Jacob and their immediate desire, 11 of them all together, is to kill Jacob. Can you imagine how absurd this is? Get into a group with 11 of your friends, and then when a 12th person walks in the room, say to those 11 friends, hey, we should kill this guy. And I guarantee you that those 10 friends will say, whoa, that's crazy. I'm going to call the police and get out of your presence. Instead, God's people are in such a horrible place that when one person says, hey, maybe we should kill Jacob, they're all like, wow, that sounds like a really great plan. Let's do that. This is what our mothers were always talking about when they said, if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? And here this moment, we see that the answer is yes. The 11 of the children, they hate God's chosen child. And so they say these words in verse 20. They say, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Now, this is really important, this this language, because in Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable, and the parable is of a landowner who leases his vineyard to tenants, and then he sends his servant to collect the fruits of that vineyard, and the tenants, they send that servant away with nothing. And so the landowner keeps doing this, thinking that eventually they'll have some respect, but they keep sending him away. So eventually what this landowner does is he sends his own son, thinking if they did not respect the servants, surely they will respect the son. But in Matthew 21, verses 38 to 39, it says, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. And so it says they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. And I I believe that Matthew here is seeing a clear connection to what happened with Joseph. Just as Joseph's brother said, come now, let us kill the one who God has chosen. So these tenants looked at the son of this landowner and said, come, let us kill him. Thinking that their greatest joy would be in rejecting this son. And it's really significant that in Matthew 27 verse 31, We're told that Jesus would be stripped of his own colorful robe, a robe made of scarlet. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that same word, stripped, is used here of Joseph, whose robe, his colorful robe, is taken from him. And what the New Testament writers want us to see is that the things that are happening to Joseph point us to an even more evil event of something that will happen in the future. And what Moses wants us to see here is that this is the way that God's children have always been treated. God's people have always faced rejection. Remember Cain and Abel? Like Adam and Eve's first children. And there's murder. And so he's given Seth. And you remember the chosen line of Seth was doing okay until we're told in Genesis chapter 6 of the demons who came and then slept with the daughters of man. And it's a reminder to us that God's chosen servant has always been persecuted. 
He's always been rejected. But the question for us is this. Are you, are you the one who will receive God's chosen servant, or are you the one who will reject God's chosen servant? See, just as the brothers reject Joseph and desire to take Joseph entirely out of their life, so it was our desire. The Bible says that we walked in enmity against God so that when Christ came, our desire was to delete Christ from our life. The Apostle John says that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. They said, I don't want the light. Get the light out of my life. And the essence of your sin, what the Bible's teaching us, is this. The essence of your sin is your desire to have a godless life. You want a life without God in it. I love what John Stott says. He says, Scripture is quite clear that the essence of sin is godlessness. It's the attempt to get rid of God. And since that's impossible, the determination to live as though one has succeeded in doing so. And so it's very important that you and I understand this, that the essence of our sin against God is this desire to live a godless life. Think about this for a moment. The the days that you do not turn to the Lord in prayer and do not seek the Lord in his word and reading his word, what is that other than your fleshly desire for godlessness rearing its ugly head? You're saying, I don't believe I need to pray and therefore see God's work in my life. And I don't need, believe I need God's word as direction in my life. I just don't need it. I'm fine living a godless life. Think about lack of forgiveness in your life. What is that other than the godless understanding of how much we have been forgiven? Think about a lack of compassion in your life. What is that other than the godless understanding of how much God has loved us when we were undeserving of that love? See, we slip into godliness, and and our great need, Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, our great need is is God-mindfulness. Rather than forgetting God, rather than pushing God out of our thoughts, our need is to be transformed in the renewal of our minds so that instead of God, uh, our minds being godless, our minds are filled with God. In verses 25 to 28, the brothers carry on the act. They've thrown him to a, into a pit, and there they sell him to Midianite traders for 20 shekels. 20 shekels of silver. And we look at this, and, and we say, surely, surely the life of Jacob is worth more than 20 shekels of silver. Surely this was not a fair trade to sell the life of their brother, the beloved son of Jacob, the chosen child through whom God would work, and surely he was worth more than that. And what practical application there is for us here? That sin is never worth it. Every one of the sins that you and I have committed, we will look at like this transaction and say it was not worth it. We all really practically, we have that friend in our life who makes questionable purchases, don't we? We look at them and we say, how could you ever buy that thing? Who could be so dumb? Well, we uh, recently moved. And so one day I was sitting in my living room and my father-in-law carried in like, you know, the most gigantic Tupper Rubbermaid um, storage container you can 
by. Like, it's massive. You can hardly even carry it through these doors. He carried one of those in, and I said, oh, interesting. What's in here? And he opened it up, and the thing was filled. I'm talking filled to the rim with porcelain dolls. And I thought, there, this is how every horror movie begins, by opening up a Tupperware container filled with porcelain dolls. And my kids were taking them out and playing with them, and I was scared out of my senses because porcelain dolls are the freakiest things that have ever been created. But then I said, well, I, these are things that are pretty old. I bet you they're worth something. And so I went on eBay, and I started searching them up. And sure enough, there are people who are spending the money that they've worked hard to earn to buy these porcelain dolls. And I said, we got to sell these things as quickly as possible. But I also said, who is doing this? Who's buying these things? Like, who's looking at this porcelain doll and saying, oh, this is worth it? And, and you need to know that that's the exact same thing that's happening in our sinfulness. Sin is never worth it. We will always look back on it and say that was not a fair trade. That moment of pleasure you get from gossip is not worth slandering a person who is made in the image of God. That moment of cheating on your spouse, whether through infidelity or pornography, that moment of pleasure is not worth the ruin and destruction that it will bring into your family. That unforgiveness you're harboring, that envy, that bitterness, that willing, unwillingness to let go and forgive, it is not worth the trouble of holding on to. No sin has ever been worth it for all time. And the application here is for us to look at this and see foolishness of sin. It's never a fair trade. As we look at this story, one of the questions that begs to be answered is this. What is the answer to all of the deep evil of this world? And I, I, I need you to know that I'm, I'm so encouraged as a pastor who has been called to lead this church and provide vision to this church. I'm so encouraged that the answer to the deep evil of our world is Jesus itself, himself. Because pretty much weekly, I talk to people who are concerned with different aspects of the culture that we live in that I'm concerned about also. There are certain people who are concerned with the political agenda and the way that it's going and the woke movement and public schools and poverty and all these other things, all these hosts of problems that we face, all these things that, that, that really, there, there's reason for concern, isn't there? And yet I'm reminded that we are called to do one thing. In the midst of all this evil, in the midst of all the darkness, we are called to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ as the light. You understand what your mission is? Your mission is not to go and fight the darkness. Your mission is to go into the darkness and redeem people to the light. So what is the way that we save Newmarket? What is the way that we save Ontario? What is the way that we can see healing brought to Canada and ultimately to the world? It is through preaching the glory and healing and redemption of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the mission of this church. Do you understand that, that if God grants us the success, success in the mission of making disciples, of seeing lost people saved and saved people matured and mature people multiplied, by nature, the darkness will be defeated. See, our greatest mission isn't just to win some sort of political 
argument. Our greatest mission isn't just to, to, you know, make sure that public schools are healthy again. Our greatest mission is to save souls. And it is as souls are saved that culture will be healed and ultimately redeemed. And it doesn't matter what facet or corner of darkness you are most worried about. The solution is to preach Christ and make disciples of him. Our healing is only found in one person, Jesus Christ which leads us to our great need and the thing that Jacob and his sons need to do. In the evil of this world, we need to receive God's provision. The end of this chapter, it's it's really interesting and it's quite ironic that Jacob is deceived again, isn't he? They fake the murder of Joseph. They dip his robe in blood and they send the robe to Jacob And it's so ironic that the very thing that Jacob used to deceive his father, a robe that he placed on his back so that his father would think that he was his brother Esau, the very thing that Jacob used to deceive his father is used to deceive him. It is the skin of an animal that once was on the shoulders of Jacob that has been dipped in blood, and now Jacob sees it and he believes that Joseph is dead. Now listen, Jacob has every reason from God to believe that this word that he received from his children is not true. Twice, twice, God told Jacob, both in Genesis 27 and in Genesis 35, God told Jacob that his offspring would receive the land, that his offspring would enter into the land. God has a word, Jacob has a word from God. That the sons that he has would enter into the land. And Jacob has a word from his children that Joseph was dead. And the question for Jacob is this. Who will he believe? Will he believe God who promised that he would bring his children into the land? Or will he believe his children who say that Jacob is dead? Now I'm reminded that you and I are in the same position as Jacob. Well, Joseph's trial, it becomes one of the darkest moments in history, doesn't it? A darker day would come. See, one day a a different son would be sent to come to earth and he too would be hated because of his father and though he was a child of God who lived in heaven, he would become a servant just as Joseph would become a slave. And this son would be rejected, mocked, spit upon. A crimson robe would be placed upon his shoulders and stripped away from him and he would enter into a darkness deeper than the darkness of Joseph's coming prison cell, the darkness of this son would be the darkness of the cross. Where on that cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God, the punishment for sin that you and I deserve to pay, Jesus bore. And yet, in the greatest moment of evil in the whole history of the world, Jesus would provide redemption through his resurrection. See, the question that I was asked from this man is, what do you do with Hitler? And as great as all the evil that has ever happened in the world has been, there has been no evil so unjust as the day that Jesus Christ, he climbed onto the cross and being the perfect son of God, he died the death of a criminal. He did not deserve to die. And he bore the weight of God's wrath upon his shoulders. There'd be no darkness greater than that, and yet God would use this great evil 
so that we could see a light to which no light would equal its brightness. See, through the evil and darkness of the cross, the people of God would find the chosen child of God through whom, by faith, the covenant promises of God flow. And the question for you and I this morning is this. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's a question that's at the center of the heart of the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper as a reminder of his death for us. Not only a reminder of the fact that it happened, but a reminder of the fact that if your faith has been placed in Jesus Christ, you have received that as a provision for you. And to take the cup and to drink the cup and to take the bread and eat the bread is to proclaim that Jesus' blood and flesh was spilt and pierced for us as a provision for us. Now, there are two reasons. Hopefully, you received a cup on your way in, and if you don't, didn't, the ushers are going around right now, and you can stick your hand in the air, and they'd get one into your hands. And there are two reasons that you might not do this. If you're not a believer, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you actually haven't received this provision. And this is a symbolic picture of a spiritual reality in your life that you have. You've received Jesus and said, he's my only way of salvation. And so we'd ask you just to let this pass as a symbol for believers. And the second thing is that if you're living in unrepentant sin, you really are making a mockery of the cross. Jesus has died to redeem you from that sin. If you're unwilling to let go of it, not that you have sin in your life, all of us have sin, but if you're unwilling to let go of that sin and walk in newness of life, and Paul says then to eat and drink of this cup is to drink judgment upon ourselves. And so you should either repent or let this cup pass. Let's see, there's two layers here. On the top layer, you can get to the bread. Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord... But I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, God, thank you for the provision of the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the cup and the bread that we can take as a reminder that Jesus spilled his blood for us in order that we might be the inheritors of your covenant promise, Lord, of salvation, of life. And God, what Joseph did for his brothers in enduring the darkness of a prison cell, Lord, it's only a hint of what Jesus would do for us and enduring the darkness of the tomb and bursting forth through resurrection into great life, Lord. We thank you that he now bears our new resurrection life. God, we give you all the praise. God, thank you for what you've done. And we praise you for Jesus Christ and the provision that we have in him. And so God, help us to sing again as we've never sung before because of how affected we are by your great love for us, God. We, we pray this all in the name of your son.